Hi, my name's Nancy. So you can find me when you come to Leadville, grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon Family Groups. My home group is the Lake County Al-Anon Group. And um, that meets at 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoons in the basement of the hospital. And so if you're ever in Leadville, Colorado, I hope you come. It's the best meeting in the world. We know that because we are at 10,200 feet high. That's two miles high. We figure we're closest to God, so we have an end. (laughs) Sometimes we get up to seven people. (laughs) And it's just even better. I'm really lucky to be here today, and so are you. We're the blessed chosen ones. People die of this disease every day. And but for the grace of God, we are not one of them today. I'm lucky to be on the member, uh, a member of the Board of Trustees uh, in Al-Anon. You know, my sponsor used to tell me that you had to do service work, and the more sick you were, the more work they gave you. And so I'm really worried about myself. I, I've been in service for 23 and a half years. And uh, right now has been a very exciting ride. As uh, a trustee on the board, uh, you never know what's happening next. It's sort of like when I was asked to come back up here to speak. You know, uh, I was at Spruce Grove and got to speak, and I thought, well, there's my one chance at Canada. I got to do it. And now here I am back again, second time, you know, and I never thought I'd be in this neck of the woods again. And uh, I feel very blessed. When I get unexpected the invitations to travel, it's like dancing with God. You don't know the steps, but you know you're going to have a wonderful experience. And I thank you very much. I thank the committee for asking me, and I thank Sandy and Scott for hosting me a second time around. You know, that really takes guts, and I am very grateful. As a trustee... You're sitting there anyway. I'm sitting there, and I'm just trying to keep up. (laughs) And um, there's so many questions, and we're in this big, heavy discussion. And um, this was a couple of summers ago at our July board meeting, and I got a call from a sponsee. Now, they don't usually put phone calls right into the boardroom. And so when that phone rang, and they said it was for me and to take it across the hall in the cafeteria, it, it frightened me. The first thing that I thought, you know, with an Al-Anon, you know, you get a, 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 any kind of dangerous situation, someone else's life passes before your eye. <laughs> Good. We're not asleep from the heat yet. <laughs> and, of course, you think of all these horrible things, um, family, husband, children. But it was my sponsor, and, uh, Kim, and she said, Nancy, Patsy, Patsy killed herself. Patsy was a sponsee of mine in my old Boulder group and had struggled with depression for a long time. Now, it's true that she chose the tree to sit under and she pulled the trigger on the gun. And she was dead before the report of that gun hit her eardrums. But as sure as we're all sitting here, alcoholism killed her. We, we don't talk about it very much, about how this is such a deadly disease. 
and it is deadly to those of us who love, are related to, or know, or are affected by someone else's drinking. We don't even have alcohol to anesthetize us. But we die. Many tiny little deaths, or one great big one like Patsy's. I was so mad at Patsy. She was a beautiful person, and she took herself away from us. Because the pain was more than anything else that she could see that was here for her today. We see the love in each other's faces and the sun falling on the floor. It is a bit warm, but it's there and we can cherish it. But Patsy won't see that anymore. So I think that I have to put our recovery and my own personal growth in sharp relief against that possibility that stands there for every one of us. I wouldn't know, have known to do that if it hadn't been for you telling me. You know, lying works. To survive in this disease, lying works. And I had done so much lying to myself and other people that I had no concept about what true was until I came here and you began to very carefully and slowly reteach me into what honesty means. And today I can be honest about my story today. I can even laugh at myself and cherish the humanness of it because I feel that I am blessed that I found you and you saved my life. So what I'm going to tell you today is just my spiritual journey. And since I was up here a while back, some of you may know a lot of this, but my story is my story. I can change that. Um, so what you hear is uh, a lot of the same things. Basically, I fight with control and anger. Always. But I just go to new levels. You know, everything I ever tried to control controls me. Have you ever noticed that? It's like holding a soap bubble or something. Immediately I am focused. I loved it when Mary said all the time she thought about this one man, except when she was sleeping or drinking. I didn't even have to drinking, you know. All I did was think about this guy and his drinking. It, the control is better today because it's more insidious. I go, yeah, I got control, controlled, man. And people in my home group laugh at me and my sponsor laugh at me. Nancy, you have a little work to do here. The other thing I deal with is anger. I can never forget. I was in the program five years and my husband, my, husband, my brother that I was the closest to was moving to Hong Kong. And I was so upset about this. He's moving to Hong Kong. I can't afford phone calls to Hong Kong. So I'm, you know, talking to my sponsor. We're going to a meeting. I'm driving to the meeting. We pull up in front of the meeting. She turns to me and says, Nance, you've got a problem here with anger. You're really mad. And I was so mad that she would tell me I was mad. You know, the nerve of her. What she thinks? She's my sponsor or something? Control and anger. So... 
When our first grandchild was born, my husband and I have three grandchildren. I'm starting at the end of the story and working backwards. Um, when my first grandchild was born, we had to drive out to California. We didn't have money for an airline ticket, so we drove to California just like crazy people. Going to have to see this first grandchild. We are now grounded in the human race for perpetuity. We have offspring who have offspring. It's a marvelous feeling. And so we wanted to go see this miracle from God. And Tom, my husband, was driving, and uh, far be it from him to ever let me drive on an important mission like this. And, uh, you know, it was my job to keep him awake. It's four in the morning. He's driving, falling asleep. I see the eyelids go down. I think, I have a vested interest here. I don't want to die. So I made it my job to keep him awake. Now, do you think it's control? I, I don't know. So I tried the loud music. I tried singing myself. That's a horrifying thought. I had the windows down and go close them. Blankly blank window, you know. So nothing's working. So I took off my clothes. Now, wait a minute. Maybe we are sleeping here. <laughs> yeah, I started taking off the clothes. And my goal was he either wake up or stop the car. <laughs> Now, that's why we do control, because we find out the stuff we're doing works. He stopped the car, and he woke up. <laughs> now, when we're driving, I, I watch the eyelids come down. I say, hey, is this the part where I start taking off the clothes? He stops the car. I don't even have to, you know, go on. He stops the car. It's great. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you that spiritual journey that I have about finding this stuff out. And as long as I'm starting at the end and working back to the beginning, I wanted to let you know that I got into Al-Anon August 13th, 1976, so it'll be 24 years in August. Thank you. You're giving yourselves a hand. And to... uh, Yes, tomorrow will be my wedding anniversary, and that'll be 34 years. And I figure I've had about seven marriages in the one marriage. You know, there's the marriage where I was holding it together, and then there was the marriage where Tom was holding it together, and then there was the marriage where neither one of us were holding it together, and then there, well, you get the idea. And if either one of us, or if we had both decided at the same time that we had had enough, and we had both walked out at the same time, I wouldn't be saying we were going to be married 34 years tomorrow. But we never decided it at the same moment. We had a lot of moments, but we never decided it at the same moment. And I only can believe, as with everything else that works in this program, that God is in charge of this relationship. You know, if I ever think I'm in charge of fixing a relationship or making one happen, it usually doesn't. But if God's in charge of our relationship, and we have a third point to that triangle, then I know that it's going the way it's going to go. Well, I guess you've already heard me say Tom, so you know that I'm married to a man named Tom. And 
November 2nd, he will have 14 years in AA. So that's the other birthday. Now, there is a pattern to this. As you can see, I had to be in Al-Anon 10 years before he found the program. And as I told Derek today, that's just so we could be about level in our recovery. Because I needed 10 more years of work. I needed those 10 years to find Nancy. I needed those 10 years to figure out really what I was all about. If you had asked me before Al-Anon about me, I would immediately talk to you about my children, my husband, my parents, anything. But I was the big black hole in my life. I hadn't a clue what I looked like. I didn't know what I liked and disliked. I was almost like a chameleon. If Tom was mad, I was mad. If Tom was happy, I was happy. But I had no idea what feelings were, and I felt like the only two you should talk about were mad and happy. I didn't know any others, and I certainly wouldn't have put a name to them or owned them. I think it's kind of like a long thing there. You know, when you talk about the damage that was done to a human being and you talk about a wounded human being, it's not any one thing. It's a process and it's the way I assimilated those events in my life. And today I can say I'm not blaming anything in my life. I'm really glad that my life happened because it brought me to this point and I can see your faces and I can be here. There's a saying that if you take the me out of blame, it's just blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't want to be blah. I haven't been accused of that too often. So I'll just tell you the me part in the story. And that's what we're told to do when we tell our story. I'm not going to tell you about Tom's drinking or other people's actions, except as I related to them. And I didn't do a very good job of relating. I grew up in western Kansas, and I've got to tell you, the drive here today was pure heaven. Walk, walking, driving through this lush green countryside and seeing huge fields just rolling away. Incredibly beautiful country you live in. Touches the heart. I think big country like this makes you feel like you've got a big higher power. Anyway, it did to me. Growing up in western Kansas, I was pretty sure there was a God in my life, but he was too far away and belonged to other people. I loved standing on the fence of my mother and father's ranch, farm, whatever you call it, where my grandfather raised champion jacks and watching the waving fields of wheat, just like ocean out there. Gorgeous, isn't it, when it turns ripe and it's just rolling? It shimmers like watered silk. I have Kansas in my blood. I'll always love those big open vistas. There were good things there. I had a horse I could escape on. I ran away every day. They just called it exercising the horse. I called it running away. There was reason for me to want to run away. My father started sexually abusing me when I was 11, and it continued until I was 15. And it was one of those closed closet door secrets that you don't tell anybody. You know, it was painful, 
It was scary. I can remember being afraid in the movie theaters. You know, you're sitting in the movie theater and you're sitting in this dark place and somebody exits or enters if they have a way to get in down by the screen. You know, they open that door down there and it lets in the daylight and you see a figure silhouetted against the light as they come in that door. And it would drive a stab of fear into my heart. And I didn't realize it, except I was remembering that if I'm in a dark place and someone opens a door, it frightened me. And I realized why. Because I did live in fear for a long time. The fear that was in my life was one that I couldn't share with anyone because I made myself responsible for my parents' marriage. So I wouldn't tell anybody. It's a frightening thing. Until finally one day, I completely severed any contact or even communication with my dad and pushed him away to save myself. It was the only thing I could think of to do. And I continued not talking to him or being alone with him for many, many years. He's still married to my mother. Uh, They celebrate their 55th wedding anniversary. They just did. And... um, Today, um, I have a relationship with both of them that I wouldn't have had if it hadn't been for you. The pain of those times curled me in on myself as if you could ever see anyone, and I'm sure you have seen that, in a spiritually fetal position. It means we bring everything in and we don't let anything get out. And I did that to protect myself, I thought if anyone knew the real Nancy, because I was sure it was my fault this was hap- that had happened to me, that you wouldn't like me. Anyone wouldn't like me. I protected myself in school with layers of books and layers of fat, braces on my teeth. I was the girl that hid along the uh, aisleways in the school so n- and wouldn't meet anybody's eyes. I was the invisible person. I graduated in the top ten of my class and nobody even remembered that I was. I went to a class reunion and somebody, they had called out the top ten in the class or something. Somebody said, Nancy, you were one of those. I I was invisible. I was an invisible person. People like myself who have been abused often set themselves up for future problems. And I certainly did that. Um, When I was in college, I lost quite a bit of weight. I didn't know how to do relationships or relate to boys, and I was out on a date, and he date-raped me. And I became pregnant, actually at that very moment. And um, when I found out that I was pregnant, I tried to figure out what I would do to solve this problem. I hadn't a clue. And I finally had to tell my parents, because I had no resources, I didn't have any knowledge, I didn't know what to do about it. And they instantly assumed it was my fault and that I was to blame and that they needed to get me out of town. And they were going to ship me off to another black sheep in the family who happened to be my Aunt Tilly. At that time, five years sober in the program and fresh from a relationship with a crocodile wrestler in Florida. (laughs) She was well equipped to take care of me. And my family gave me this order. They said, Nancy, you must give that child up. You have to carry that baby full term, and you have to give it up for adoption, and that's it. You see, when we don't know how to make decisions, someone else does them for us. 
And that's what happened to me. I had never made decisions in my life. I didn't know how to make decisions. No one had ever taught me to make decisions. I didn't know it until I came here. And you taught me. You told me, you know what? This disease that we have, and by the way, it's not called Alanonism. The disease is called alcoholism. I've heard people say, I have the disease of Alanonism. I'm sorry, Alanon, and how it works. That's the recovery. <laughs> Um, it's not the disease. <laughs> and this disease that we have is on three levels, spiritual, mental, and physical. And you have to make decisions that way. So when you're going to make a decision, what's your gut reaction is the physical one. It's usually wrong, and it's the first one we have. Oh, yeah, I want that. You know, that's the gut reaction. So you ask yourself the question on all those levels. First, gut reaction. What's your gut reaction? If the answer is, yeah, this is a good decision, then go on to the next question. Ask yourself, does it make sense? On the mental level, does this decision make sense? Whoa, that's a concept, huh? But then on the spiritual level, spiritually, does it violate what I believe in morally? Which for me today is the program. If it violates any principles of the program, then this isn't good. So on those three levels, what's my gut reaction? Does it make sense? And does it violate any principles? Then the fourth question. Do you have opportunity? I don't know about you, but I'm often asking myself about a decision that hasn't even come in front of me yet, and I don't even have the opportunity. Oh, yeah, right. I'm going to Toronto in 2005. Well, let's wait until we get there, right? When I got to Florida to be with Aunt Tilly, she said, you have a choice. You don't have to do what your family tells you to do. But I couldn't hear that. I couldn't hear it. After five years of AA under her belt, she was doing terrific. And she was speaking a foreign language to me. You know, it's sort of like when we're hearing somebody with an accent talk and we can't understand quite what they're saying. Now, people say to me, oh, you must be uh, from the U.S. Uh, I can tell from your accent. Now, see, I don't think I have an accent. But I know I do because an accent is... Another language that's different from the way I'm used to hearing. And I wasn't used to hearing that kind of healthy talk. So when she told me I had a choice, I didn't. my mind wouldn't accept that. I had to do what my family told me to do because the shame and guilt told me I have to do this. Can't let them down. <laughs> so I went through with it. And I had a baby girl that I never held, that I never saw. And I didn't even cry or grieve that loss. I just locked it away, closed that closet door. It was as if it never happened. You know, if you pile enough pain and anger away and you keep those doors firmly locked, eventually it'll be like one of those volcanic domes that is pushing up and up. In fact, right now, I just from a trip in Yellowstone, found there's one under the Yellowstone Lake that is pushing up and up. And that huge caldera that we went traveling around in Yellowstone is the remnants of the last explosion. And now they say the caldera is building. 
and within the next 4,000 years, it's going to explode again. I got scared when they said that. I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to explode right here. I'm right here in Yellowstone. And Tom said, Nancy, 4,000 years. And I said, well, any time in the next 4,000 years means the next moment to me. And he said, you could be in New York, and if that thing explodes, it's sayonara. Oh, okay, well then, let's enjoy ourselves. <laughs> now, that's what I was doing. I was building, building, and the cap rock was rising as I shoved that pain and that anger and humiliation and everything else away, slammed the door, and was fizzy sunshine for everybody. Nobody knew what was going on inside. I went back to college, I went to stay with another aunt. This was in New Mexico, and uh, my cousin set me up on a blind date. Now, I was not ready to be on a blind date. I, I had had it with the human race and with men. But she set me up on a blind date, and I thought, well, I sure would like to have a break from the studying, so I went to a sheriff's posse dance and met Tom. Now... Tom is six foot four, broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip, and he still is, I've got to tell you. And that guy's still music when he walks across the floor in those cowboy boots. <laughs> Do it for me one more time, Tom. Just walk across the floor. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, he can polka like nobody's business. And... He swept me literally and figuratively off my feet. We were engaged in two months, and it didn't occur to me that it was unusual that between every dance he would go out and get another beer out of the back of his pickup truck. I thought that's what cowboys do. And actually, in my experience, it's what a lot of cowboys do. (laughs) We got married the next year and set up housekeeping in a little 8 by 35 foot trailer. Of course, the size of this man, we had to have a king size bed, and you should have seen a king size bed in that camp and that trailer. It was wall to wall bed. I had to be on the bed to make it. I don't know how he ever got that bed in there. I often asked him that, and he'd just say it's a secret. <laughs> and I never knew. And that's where we started housekeeping. It's funny because this summer we are moving out of the house we've been renting, and for two months we're going to live in our RV while we're building a house. It's 8 by 35 feet long. We've come full circle. And we don't even have a king-size bed this time. But there's a lot more serenity in that home than there was in the first home. For the first five years of our marriage, there was a lot of fighting. And a lot of... You know, the progressive disease. Uh, Tom kept drinking too, but mine kept progressing too. Those fights were horrible fights. They were about big, important, horrible things, like nasal spray. Oh, you've had those too? Those fights would be about, you will use the nasal spray, no, I will not use the nasal spray, and then it would go on to his mother and my mother, and, well, you know, those kinds of fights. And at one point in the fight, somewhere along the way, he would, and we were always undressed at the time of the fight, because this was in the evening, 
we were getting undressed in the living room. Well, there was no room in the bedroom. And um, he would go back to the little closet and grab out his red cowboy shirt and put it on and leave. And um, there were times when there was nothing between the bottom of the red cowboy shirt and the top of the boots, you know. And I can remember the flash of those white legs going out the door. <laughs> and the squeal of that pickup truck tire as he was leaving, and I would just collapse in tears on the floor because I was sure he was never coming back. He always came back. <laughs> and then we'd make up. Oh, now that was the good part. The making up. I became a past master at picking out I'm sorry gifts. You know, we'd be going down the mall and I'd say, ooh, I like that terrarium. Mm, too bad we can't afford it. And then the next fight, I'd get a new terrarium. He wasn't the reason for the fight. My obsession was the reason for the fight. You know, he was just drinking and getting nice and numb and mellow, and he'd just go drifting off. But I would open my mouth. Now, I guess you tell, can tell I kind of like talking. I am a master at sarcasm, which means to shred as with knives. And I can use sarcasm as he could use a branding iron. I could use it to wound, to strip the flesh from his bones. So he's drinking, and I'm talking. And when he couldn't take it anymore, he would leave. And yet he brought me, I'm sorry, presents. An angry person is someone who is hiding the fear. Anger is just disguised fear. And I lived with fear every day. Fear that he would know about me. You see, I hadn't told him about being raped. I hadn't told him about being sexually abused. I hadn't told him any of that. He just thought I was Susie Sands Sunshine. So I was always afraid. Always afraid he might know the real Nancy. I was also afraid he wouldn't love me. And if he didn't love me, I was sure my world would end because I needed to be defined by someone loving me. Remember, I was the black hole in my life. And the only way I'd know that is I would know right where I ended was right where the love began. I couldn't see any interface. He had to keep loving me. It defined my existence. But when he was drunk... There was something else that took his attention. There was something else that came first. And how I hated the alcohol. I didn't hate the alcohol because it made him drunk. I hated the alcohol because it was more important than me. And I needed to be the most important thing. And if he didn't love me, then I wasn't worth anything. So the fear was what drove my anger. And in the five characteristics of my disease, they say anger. But now we know what the anger really was. And they say obsession. And now we know what it really is. It's fear. Well, when I had been married ten years, by that time we moved to Denver, and we had three little kids. 
You know, when Ted was born, our oldest, it was like a miracle happened in my life. That good old characteristic of my disease obsession turned and was focused on this little child. And for a while, Tom had a reprieve. I didn't have my eyes on him. I was so into kids. Holding that little baby in my arms and kissing his fuzzy little brand new head. Is there ever a smell that equates with a brand new baby fresh from God? And I looked at his eyes and I knew unconditional love for the first time. He didn't care about who his mom was. He just loved me. And if someone had told him, he wouldn't have cared as long as he got to eat. I knew unconditional love. It was beautiful. And after Ted, who, by the way, I always forget the kids as as I go on, he will be uh, 29 this year, and he's six foot five and drives a Harley. (laughs) In my mind, he's still just this little tiny golden-haired child. He has two children of his own and a nice little wife who goes to Al-Anon. After Ted was Sarah, two years later in Omaha in one of those little geographical tours for a year. And um, Sarah is in love with an alcoholic and has been for five years. He's dying of the disease. He has liver failure and diabetes and tells her he won't marry her, but if she wants to stick around, that's fine by him, and so she does. And she hasn't found our program, although all the kids went to Alateen when they were with us. And Matthew, my youngest, is married to a lovely girl who's got two parents. Both parents are uh, alcoholics. One is in the program. And she is a gorgeous girl, and they have a little baby girl. The, uh, baby, her baby girl and uh, the youngest in Ted's family were both born within about three weeks of each other. So we've just had a baby boom in our family. And they are wonderful kids. And they all are affected by the disease of alcoholism. And they all are qualified to go to Al-Anon. And at this point in their life are choosing not to avail themselves of it. So pray for them. Pray for the families still in pain. Because they are not in these rooms and they are not sitting here together today being loved and supported and held up. And so they need our prayers. Those next five years of our marriage were wonderful years with the children. And I just played with the children and I told them every day, I love you. Because my mother did not say those words to me until I came to you and you taught me to say them first. And I went to her and said, I love you, Mom. And she said them back. And I got to hear my mother say, I love you. And I'm grateful to you for that. And my children hear it from me. And they heard it from me every year. Every day in those five years, even in the worst of it, because they were my joy and my surcease. If I could lie on my tummy on the floor with them and color on paper, that was more important than anything else. And thank goodness God gave me that. And while I was having that time with my children, my husband was busy with his disease and I didn't even have to watch it. But eventually my eyes drifted back to him and I realized what was going on, and I began yelling at him again. So for our 10th wedding anniversary, and so that would be 24 years ago, uh, tomorrow, he gave me a present. He said, Nancy, 
I'm going to give you a wonderful anniversary present. See, he knew it was wonderful. He said, I'm going to cut back to two beers a day. (laughs) Now, you know, a lot of people have heard that two beers a day thing. I found out what it is. It means the two you have in your hand right then. I didn't know that. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to be outdone. So I said, I won't mention alcoholism. And he said, wow, that'd be great. I didn't realize I'd been saying it a lot. So I didn't talk about alcohol. And he cut back to two beers a day, I guess. Now, it was a level of which of us was the most sick that my present only lasted two weeks and his lasted a month. And when mine went away and I mentioned the word alcohol, he didn't rub my nose in it. He's a pretty mellow guy. But when my present went away, I was going to let him have that. How dare he take away my present? And I went down to the garage. Now, I don't know about you guys, but we had a second refrigerator in the garage. It was for the turkey. No, no, the turkey at Thanksgiving. You know, that. (laughs) Except I never could get the turkey in there because there was always beer in there. So we had this garage that had a full-stocked refrigerator, and you know that there's a rule. Anything drunk in the garage doesn't count. That's because I can't hear the can pop. Right, right. And so he's always in the garage working on a project. And the project never got done. I never saw this project. I don't know what it was. But he was always down there working on it. And so I went down to the garage. Now, it was at the end of a cul-de-sac, and the garage door was open. And in Denver, it was a warm day just like today. And, you know, let's get some air in here. And so he had the garage door open. And it was at the back of my mind that when I went down there, I wasn't just going to let him have it. I was going to make sure every neighbor within the sound of my voice, no small radius here, would hear what he had done. I wanted to shame him so badly that he would say, Oh, gee, Nance, you're right. I am so stupid. I'll never do that again. Right. Have you ever heard of anyone being so humiliated that they would do that? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. But when I laced into him, that was at the back of my mind, that the man that I love so much that I would publicly humiliate. Pretty sick. And as I was really rolling, I had to take a breath. And he was practiced in these affairs. And in that moment, when he had a chance, he said, now he had never turned around. He was still leaning on his workbench. His head drooped between his shoulders. And when I took that breath, he said, Nancy, Drinking is my one pleasure in life. He didn't say, after you. He just said, my one pleasure in life. I was reduced to zero against this huge rival I had, alcohol. And I knew immediately what was going on. It was a spiritual awakening. I realized my husband was an alcoholic, and it was as if I had been kicked in the gut. And I remembered Aunt Tilly and AA, and I went upstairs to call AA.
I called the Denver Service Center, got a man named Dave, and I said, Dave, I need for you to come out here on a 12-step call. My husband's an alcoholic. And he kind of laughed like that, and he he said, uh, uh, does he want us to come out there? And I said, no, he, just, he doesn't know about this. You have to sneak up on him. <laughs> And he laughed some more and he said, I think you need to talk to my wife, June. I thought, that's a good idea. The three of us can sneak up on it. <laughs> so June got on the phone. And June talked to me for quite a while. And she said, what's going on with you? And I'd start to tell her about Tom. And she'd say, no, what's going on with you? And I'd start to, and she kept doing that, you know. She'd keep getting off the subject. And she'd say, well, how do you feel about that? And I'd tell her how mad he was. She kept saying, Nancy, how do you feel? She was like a broken record. You know, I didn't want to talk to this woman, but I didn't want to hang up either. Because I had a feeling there was something here. And I was pacing the kitchen floor and holding on to that receiver. And my hand was slick with sweat. I didn't want to talk. But I didn't want to hang up. I'd say about the first five years of Al-Anon. That's about the way I was. She told me where there was a meeting with babysitters. And I said, I don't drive. I have a math. At that time, I had a master's degree. Um, I already knew how to drive. But when we moved to Denver, I had stopped driving. Someone said to me one time, how about that time when I locked myself in my house and I wouldn't leave and I wouldn't open the curtains and I just stayed in my house and I wouldn't drive or anything? They said, hey, there's a name for that disease. And I said, yeah, alcoholism. <laughs> That's what I call it. I was afraid for my neighbors to know me. You know, me who was standing there in the garage yelling so they would know about Tom. I was afraid for them to know me. If I saw my neighbor outside, I went inside because I didn't want to meet her. And I'm a gardener, so that's hard. You know, you're out in the garden, you see the neighbor come out, you run in the house. <laughs> I weighed 220 pounds. My children were so clean. If they were ro- crawling across the floor and I picked them up and I looked at their little knees and their knees were black, I'd wash the floor and I'd wash them. I mean, I was such a good mommy and such a good housekeeper. When I think about my linen closet now with nostalgia, it was a thing of beauty. You know, there was labels for everything. King-size sheets, queen-size sheets, pillowcases that don't match anything. I had everything labeled and clean and neat, but I didn't know what I looked like. I would never look in the mirror, and I didn't drive. And she said, I'll come and pick you up. Well, that was the other thing. No one should come in my house. So I had to get to a meeting. I was afraid she'd stop talking to me because she called me every day for a week. And I knew that if I stopped talking to her, I'd, I'd go back to being really crazy. So I looked out in the yard. Now, we only had one one car that was driving, and Tom was taking it. It was a Mac, Dodge Taxi van, and he was taking it to work. But there was a 57 Caddy sitting out in the yard that he had just rebuilt the engine on. 
And I knew it ran because every time he had guys over, they'd uh, raise the hood and start that caddy and go and stand there and look at that engine and go, hmm, look at that. You know, I never knew. It's a male bonding thing, you know. They, they look at that car. So I knew it would run. I knew it would run. And he had, he was going on to redo the inside, the upholstery and everything. So he stripped all the upholstery and seats out, and it was just like bare metal in there. Well, I figured, hey, I'll set a seat in there. We'll go to a meeting. I got the kids all ready. I set the seat in there. Every time I came to a stop sign, that seat would go back, you know. Kids flying through the trunk. Hey, Mama, do that again. Yeah. And, and the kids, you know, I had Sarah on one hip, Matt on the other hip. They were two and three. And, you know, Ted running up ahead of me up the steps. Uh, it was uh, down on Washington Street in Denver. It's called Mountain View. And it was up above a vacuum cleaner place. At these places we have meetings. And I go up the stairs, and uh, at the top of the stairs there was a lady, and she just took my children and took them down, and she said, the meeting's that way, and she said, took these children that haven't been, hadn't been out of my sight for five years. She took them away to I didn't know where, and I didn't even ask. There's a miracle. And I turned and looked down this dark hallway, and there was a lighted doorway. And I was not afraid. You know, God doesn't wait until we get in the program to work in our lives. But we don't know it until after we've been here. You know, it's like when you're telling your story and all of a sudden you go, Oh, I know, God was working in my life that moment. I just didn't know it. I know it today that that was a miracle. And when I walked into that sunlit room and I saw this circle, of loving faces. And there was one empty chair and they said, here, sit here. And they opened the meeting with a bunch of chanting. And all these words that did not make sense. And I thought, there's too many words. I can't hear it. But I could see the love in the faces. I could see the smiles in the eyes. That's all that kept me from just darting out of that room. And at the end of the meeting, you know, the closing with the Lord's Prayer, I knew the Lord's Prayer, so I could say that. But I wanted to tell you, I heard people say their name, and I passed, and I thought, I can say that. I can say three words. I hold up two fingers. I could say three words. Right. Well, I'm still in recovery. And so... I practiced in my mind, and that's probably why I couldn't hear very much, because I was practicing, Nancy, I pass, Nancy, I pass, so that when it came to me, I could say that. After the meeting, people came up to me and said, keep coming back, you know, and everybody hugged me. Me, who didn't want to be touched, I had this thing, don't touch me. Um, The times when we need to hug the most is when we don't want anyone to touch us. And... This really, like, 10-month pregnant lady came up to me and said, I'm Judy, and I'm your sponsor. Now, she has heard me tell my story. She said, I told you I was your temporary sponsor. Well, she's still my sponsor, so it's pretty temporary, you know. All I heard was, I'm your sponsor. And I grabbed her like a lifesaver, and I said, I don't know what a sponsor is, but... I need some help. And she says, yes, 
coming back. And she kept talking to me and uh, got me to do things I never would have believed I could do. You know, I didn't know until later that service was what I was doing. Good service is selfish. If you ever do service because you are feeling like you have to do it for the good of the program, it's not service. Good service is selfish. Because you don't want to be a martyr and be modeling martyrdom. And when I was doing service, I just did it because I wanted something. They told me to go buy the literature. I wanted the literature. They told me to go to these group uh, district meetings, you know, bring back the news. I just wanted the news. I didn't know I was doing service. If someone had told me I was doing service, I, I would have been scared to death. You know, all I knew was I wanted it. I was in Al-Anon about three years before I got well enough to try to kill Tom. <laughs> you did a lot of good work on me. You began getting me to let my anger out. You know, I was in the program less than a year when I finally got around to that fourth step. I thought I was going to get it done in the first six weeks or so. But... It just took a little longer. And Judy told me to write out that fourth step. And we met on a park bench, and I brought my fourth step. You know, it was a stack of papers, VA high. And her eyes got big when she saw that. And she says, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she says, I know a way to cut to the chase here. She said, just tell me what's not in there. God knew who I needed for a sponsor because what was in there was a whole bunch of BS about blame, blame, blame. And, and you know, just being mad at Tom and mad at this person and mad at that person. But what wasn't in there was that I had been sexually abused and date raped and gave up a baby. So, well, that was good. That's what I told her. I didn't know what a relief it would be to tell another human being that. We know those steps are God-inspired. And when I hear people say, yeah, I took a fifth step, I told myself what was going on, and I'm sure God knows. Nothing works till we say it out loud to someone else. And there was such freedom with that. When I could tell it to Judy, then I could tell it to my group. Now I can tell it to anyway. And the things that controlled me do not control me any longer. When I did that this step, the things that were controlling me lost their power. And she began crying and said, damn you. And I thought, oh, no, I've done it wrong. Well, I didn't know how to do a fifth step. I was sure I'd done it wrong. And she held me tight and cried and said, you are a blessing from God. Because I was sexually abused by my dad, and I, I didn't tell anyone. Now, see, I thought she knew everything. She had been in the program five years. And she had done a fifth step, but she hadn't put that in. So we grew together, and I think that's what sponsorship is. 
is that two wounded people heal each other with honesty and love. Thank God we have that. Thank God. So I had done a lot of work, and by three years in the program, she was going to go and tell her story down at Wyeth. It was a great big AA Al-Anon speaker meeting, and she was going to tell her story. This was a big deal, and she wanted me to be there. Now I put off asking Tom. Notice I said asking. I had forgotten or never been told that it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. And uh, I was going to ask him if I could go hear her. But I waited till that morning. Now, he had already had a six-pack of beer, and he was working at cutting a big hole in the side of the house. Uh, it was going to be for a sliding glass door that went in like two months later. <laughs> And he's out on the back grass with his electric saw doing this thing. And I went out there and I said, honey, I need to go, uh, may I go um, listen to Judy tell her story tonight at Wise? And he says, no, I'm busy on this project. Now, I was well enough to know that didn't make sense. Took me three years, but I had figured that out. That him cutting a hole in the side of the house had nothing to do with me going to Wyatt. But I had set it up, and now I was mad at him. I still hadn't gotten really well. Well, I noticed that my flowers needed some water. And, you know, I decided to give him some water. And I'm watering the flowers, and I wait until he revs up one of those electric things he was doing. Now, you know that tag on those electric cords that says, don't immerse in water, dangerous, you know? Don't believe it. I sprayed him with enough water for three electrocutions, and nothing happened. Except that he got really mad. And he threw the piece of wood at me that he was cutting. And I went in the garage and I just cried and cried. Now, you know, the same thing applies to tears that applies to beers. All the tears cried in the garage don't count. So finally I came to that realization. I went to the phone and I called Judy. And I told her what happened. And she said, well, I'll be right over there to pick you up. And I look at my watch, you know, it's hours until she's supposed to be at the meeting. I said, well, it's too early. And besides, he said, I can't go. And she said, I'll be over there to pick you up. And she did. Now, she's a lot shorter than I am, but Tom never took her on. <laughs> and I went to the meeting and had a great time. And as she was driving me home, she said, are you sure that you want to go back home? I said, Sure. I couldn't get it, you know. The man had just thrown a piece of wood at me. I had just tried to electrocute him, and she was worried about maybe the state of my safety. And I'm going, what's wrong with you, lady? (laughs) I didn't have a clue. And I said, oh, sure, it'll be fine. And it was. See, that's the up and down of alcoholism. We go from the pits of despair to the heights of ecstasy, and we did it all within 20 minutes. We could do that. Well, I was in the program five years, and I began to do things like DR and assemblies and all those kinds of things, and I'd leave, and those things were good because life was getting pretty crazy, and his drinking was getting worse. And I decided for 
my 15th wedding anniversary, see that would have been five years in the program, that I was going to give myself a weekend in Al-Anon. It was, been, it was just starting that year. It was brand new. And I told Tom, now see, I've gotten well in two years. I, instead of asking permission, I told him, I said, honey, I'm going to the weekend in Al-Anon. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I thought, this is easy. What I didn't realize is that he thought I was inviting him too. And so we had a camper then, and he loaded the kids and the camper and three cases of beer, and we went for the weekend in Al-Anon. <laughs> I cried the whole way up, and he thought it was because of the anniversary present he had given me, this jewelry box, you know, and I'm just crying. I couldn't tell him, honey, three cases of beer were going to the weekend in Al-Anon. Oh, my God. So I had only been in five years, see. So you could see the recovery was happening, but it just... It wasn't there yet. Well, we got there. And I went to all my meetings, and he took the kids horseback riding. It was super. It was wonderful. I was thinking, why would I think this would be horrible? And I came to check on him after the horseback ride, and he's on the couch, sick. And I look in the cabinet, all the beer's still there. And I say, honey, what's wrong? And he says, oh, I can't die. I gotta get better to die. It was one of his favorite sayings that he usually said at the porcelain throne, you know. And this time he hadn't been drinking. I thought, what's wrong here? I always promised myself I'm not gonna laugh at this part. <laughs> he had a prostate infection and he had just taken the kids horseback riding. It was horrible. And he was so sick. Now, I love this because it's my story, but I get to tell this part because it was also a spiritual awakening for me. Because the next morning we went to the spiritual meeting and he said, I'll go with you. Now, Al-Anon was something that he tolerated because he loved the hugs, but he wouldn't have anything to do with those AAs. And when I brought home that book called Living with an Alcoholic and I threw it on the coffee table, he said, put that thing away. Somebody might think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so I became this closet Al-Anon. But he said, I'll go with you to the spiritual meeting, which was AA and Al-Anon spiritual sharing. And I had a spiritual awakening that morning. It was a marvelous meeting. I didn't even realize he was sitting beside me. Now, you know God was working because I would have been one of those, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And it didn't happen to me. So I was really startled when, as we were leaving the meeting, he said, I think I had a spiritual awakening because I forgot he was even asleep. And he, he white-knuckled, went dry at that meeting for five years. He never went to AA. He just did one of those numbers of super self-will. That's when, if anybody ever tells me, oh, an alcoholic has no will power, I go, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. I've never seen such strong self-will. Now, that was anger. He wanted to drink, and he couldn't drink. He wouldn't let himself. That was pure anger and so those next five years I needed Al-Anon like I never needed Al-Anon before we had violence in our home screaming, yelling kicking, breaking plates I mean even he did something sometimes 
And I needed to go to those assemblies. I needed it because there was so much anger and so much violence that if, if I had stayed around, I, I know I, I could have just lost the whole thing. And I have problems with depression. Even in recovery, I have problems with depression. I don't stay on this wonderful high and wear angel wings and go around being wonderful Nancy Allenon all the time. I can't deal with things, and I need my sponsor, and I need to work the program, and I need to do those darn steps again, and I need to do another inventory, and I need to find out what it is that's making me just be in this black tunnel. And I, I had depression during those five years and became suicidal. And it was not easy for me trying to stick, and it was not easy for him trying to stick. There was just a lot of danger and a lot of unhappiness. And he was aware of that, and he thought, well, the fix would be if we could all go rafting together. And we're going to take the kids, and we're going to go raft the Colorado River. And I thought, great, maybe this will do it. And so we all got on this raft. And actually, the children were on the great big safe rafts that everybody was safe on because it was huge and the guy was rowing it that knew what he was doing. And then Tom and I, with four other crazy people, got in this little boat that you row yourself and have a boatmaster. And it was a two-night trip, and the guy running the trip said to us, Now, don't lose your oar. It'll cost you a 100 bucks. Boy, I heard that. And the first day of the float trip was beautiful. It was nice and smooth. And I thought, I can handle this. It was fun. And we'd sing while we were floating down the river. And I just really enjoyed it. We camped out under the stars and watched the bats flitting over the river. I mean, it was just a great experience. And the next morning, the guy said, now watch it, because today we go through the skull and the funnel. Well, the names themselves didn't tell me anything. I found that later they're like class five rapids, and they're these huge rapids, you know. And then after the second rapid, there is this thing called the Room of Doom where people die. I was taking my children on this river. I can't believe it. And so he said, now, when we get to the first one, when we get to the skull, I'm going to give you instructions, but you're going to have to pay attention to my hand motions because you won't be able to hear my voice. Oh, yeah, that should have been a clue, right? So we're coming up on the rapid, and there's this giant, I've used my hands too much, there's this giant rock over here to the left, and he's saying, row right, row right. So we hit the rock. You know, we didn't row right. I guess we were rowing wrong. And so we hit the rock and slipped. And that thing of uh, someone else's life passing before your eyes, I instantly thought, oh, no, Tom can't swim as good as I can. (laughs) Yeah, right. I had on this little, you know, baseball hat, little slip-on canvas shoes, my contacts, you know, and my oar. I held on to the oar. And I came up under the boat and then maneuvered myself out from under the boat, and I was right at the precipice. And below me fell the river. It was definitely a down. And you look down, you know. And I had just that moment in time. And I think it was a measure of my recovery, about nine years in the program or something then, that I actually said a prayer to God and said, I'm in your hands, God. And I felt peace come over me. And I thought, what a wonderful adventure. 
And I laid back with the oar between my feet, and I just went for a ride. And I went down into that water that was like foaming latte. And it was just, you know, spraying up high, and there, you, you didn't see these rocks until they were like there. And I was just steaming down this river, and I saw this big rock wall, and I was just going for it like a locomotive. And I thought, okay, here it is. And then all of a sudden the river turned and went that way, and so did I. And it was a fantastic experience. I never knew whether I was in the air or the water. And so taking a breath was an adventure. You didn't know if you were going to breathe or choke. And, you know, hitting these rocks, but they didn't really, like, hurt me. I hurt the next day, but it didn't hurt then. I feel like today that's the way my life is. I swim in my higher power like a fish in the sea. And it's all around me, and it's action. And there's stuff going on that I have no power over at all. And I'm just along for the ride, and thank you, God. What a ride. Well, I hit this little calm place between the two rapids. And over here is that great big oar boat. Everybody's been pulled in from our raft except me. I could swim too good, so I was way far away. Everyone else was safe. They couldn't get me. And I wave. My daughter's crying because she thinks mother's going to die. And I yell, I'm okay. I'm having a great time, you know. And she's crying. And I thought, how very like me, you know. Someone's having the time of their life, and I'm usually am the one crying. I felt like I understand now the other side. And Tom's worried sick. Everybody's over there going, oh, we can't get you. And I'm going, bye. And I'm in my life jacket going for the the. I never knew when I passed the room of doom because they don't put signs up and I didn't see it. And down at the bottom, after I got through the funnel, there's the big rowboat or boat pulled up on the shore and I stagger ashore and I have my ten oars. You see, every time a loose oar went by me in the river, I'd grab it. It was another hundred bucks. Yeah, I had ten oars. And they say those extra oars gave me enough buoyancy that it probably saved my life because the very next week a woman did die in the room of doom. And I feel like that's like the program. You know, I'm just going for it. And I hear someone say something. I hear Mary drop a pearl of wisdom and I grab that. That's just like an oar. And you know what? I'm going to be going through the room of doom. I don't know when. Next week, tomorrow, next year. And I'm going to need that oar. Thank you, Mary. I'm going to need every oar I pick up. I need you because I need that buoyancy, and I'll use it. You know, they never gave me all the extra hundred bucks. <laughs> At least they didn't charge Tom for his lost oar. Our experience with the program just keeps going and going. Matthew went out, did drinking and drugging. Tom came to al He got sober, as you know, 14 years ago when he went to live in Boston for eight months on a job. And he nearly died. It was two in the morning. He called me up and he says, Nance, I'm puking blood. I'm going to die. And I said, probably. But, you know, God took you 1,500 miles away from me because he knew I can't do anything. You have to do it. And you know where help is. Now, I meant that he would call a hospital. But you know what he did? 
He went to a hospital and he went into an AA meeting. And he went, like he does everything else, full hog, both feet. And when he came home, he really had it. And it's a good thing because right then at that moment, our son went out drinking and drugging. And so Tom went to Al-Anon with me, and uh, he would haul Matthew to his favorite AA meeting. But you know how that is. If you're drinking and you're going to an AA meeting, you can get really crazy. And boy, Matthew did. We tried to put him into um, a, a treatment center, and he refused treatment. He was old enough that he could refuse, and we couldn't make him go in. And I was at the end of my rope. And uh, we tried, he finally um, uh, hurt me and stole my car, and I called the police. And in Colorado, even if I don't press charges, the police do. And so I said, I don't want to press charges. I just want you to get my car back and make sure it's okay. And they said, you don't have a choice, lady. It was one of those powerless things. And um, uh, they pressed charges and put him in jail, and part of his... Uh, thing that the judge told him was the whole family had to go to treat uh, to uh, therapy sessions. So we're going to these therapy sessions, and I'm getting madder and madder. And driving home, I said, um, you know, we've got to get honest in there. You know, no, nothing's going to happen unless we get honest. And Tom turned and looked at me, and he said, well, if you see the problem, you're probably the solution. I couldn't believe it. How dare he talk recovery to me. I was so mad I moved out of the bedroom. That show him. And I went down to the basement in Ted's bedroom. Ted was in the Navy by then. And, you know, I'm down there reading out on literature. And this is what he should read, you know. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> We had been married at that time 20 years, which means I had been in the program 10 years, but I was reading the literature for him. And he came downstairs, and he had a red rose and a card, and he stops at the doorway, and he comes very tentatively to the end of the bed, you know, kind of like... Uh, you know, facing the lion in its den, and he hands me the rose. I took the rose, so he thought that was a good sign, you know, and then he hands me the card, and the card says, on the front it said, I know for a long time you've been wanting to tell me something, and then I open it up, and in the inside it said, I'm finally ready to listen. Wow. I thought it was all about Matt, or I thought it was all about Tom. It wasn't. Again, my recovery was about me being honest. And so, for the first time in our married life, I told him. I told him about the sexual abuse and the date rape and losing the baby. And as I began to talk, he moved up the bed. And he, by the time I was saying that I had lost, you know, that I had given away this baby, me who loves babies. He was holding me and crying with me. And I knew unconditional love for the third time in my life. My children, I had found it with you. And then blessing of all blessings, I found it with my best friend. 
And as he held me and cried, he began laughing. The nerve of this man. He began laughing. And he's, he's laughing and I'm going, well, if you want a divorce, you have every right to ask for one. And he said, oh, no. He said, every time you'd come home from a fifth step and you'd be flying high and say, i got to talk to you, I would run and hide. And it's true. After that first step with Judy, I had I thought, I'm going to tell Tom. And I had gone, and he was in the bathroom. I mean, I said, honey, I need to talk to you. And he's off like a shot, you know. And he... I got the idea when my nose was pressed to the crack of the door. It wasn't the right time, you know. (laughs) And he said, every time you'd say that you wanted to talk to me, I thought you were going to ask me for a divorce. So, I guess we entered a brand new marriage. We could reconfirm our love for each other in recovery with honesty. And I've got to tell you, It's not roses. Honesty can be uncomfortable. I know if he says, geez, did you brush your teeth before you came to bed tonight? You know, that's honest. And i got to say, well, excuse me. (laughs) Or I can say to him, honey, go do that somewhere else. (laughs) But you know, I do believe that as we are learning and growing and recovering in this program, we learn more about ourselves. Reflected in every person's story and in every person's face is the promise of my own recovery. If I didn't have you, I would be dead. The last time I thought about doing suicide, I was in the program some 20-some years. I didn't know that it was a chemical imbalance. I didn't realize it. People talk about menopause. It's dangerous. Chemical imbalance kills. And I almost did. What saved me was as I got up off the bed, I thought, all right, I can go to the medicine cabinet where I know Tom has a scalpel. Or I could call my sponsor, who at that time, since Judy had moved, was rusty. I've gone through several sponsors myself. And that's what I did. My feet, I don't remember deciding, but my feet walked to the phone. Thank goodness my feet had the habit. If we don't build those habits in moments of crisis when the brain shuts down and you're walking in a black tunnel and you don't know what your body's doing, hope that you've established the pattern. And I'm glad that my feet knew to walk to the phone. And that was God. I was delegate then. I was delegate from my area to the World Service Conference. And once again, it was borne home to me that the sickest person is the one who needs to do the most service. Because right after that, after they uh, sent me to the doctor and everything, I went to the World Service Conference and I'm standing there saying, I don't even know why I'm here. I am so messed up. And they said, you're right in the right place, honey. Keep coming back. Well, I brought all of these quotes up here to tell you, and I didn't tell you one. (laughs) I was going to tell you a poem, and I was going to tell you all this stuff. Probably the important thing that I would like to close with is uh, a quote from Lois, because I like it so much. You know, we have no room in this program for arrogance or self-centeredness. 
Honesty can't live in that climate. I have to tell you everything. I can't hold back anything. I have to show you all the warts. I have to tell you exactly what happened to me and how the program worked in my life. Because if I don't do that, I'll die. Lois said, I believe smugness is the very worst sin of all. Only with great difficulty does a shaft of light pierce the armor of self-righteousness. I've got to tell you, every day I have a daily meditation. And I read. I loved it when we had the daily uh, reading today, Lynn, because I used that book too. I read out of several daily readers, and I have a moment of meditation every morning. That's how I kickstart my day. And today is the first day of my time in Al-Anon. All the others don't count. It's today that counts. And this is my first day. And I started it with my higher power. And today I have a relationship with my higher power that if I can keep that relationship going, I won't fall off the cliff. But you know what? I so often get into what does everybody think about me and I start thinking horizontally, all these other things, and then I forget. So I need that today. Lois also said, spirituality has a deeper meaning than the search for daily necessities. Yeah, I do daily meditation and I go to my meeting and I call and people call me. But if I don't write, if I don't write down my thoughts, if I don't do some of the stuff that I need to do, which is uh, all of this work of sponsors, sponsees, calling, going to a meeting and reading and, you know, just as much as I can, if I don't show up for all of that, I am sick. And I do that regularly to remind myself. <laughs> so I wrote this down, and this is the uh, this is the thing that I have to tell you today about my disease. I want to thank you for everything that you've given to me, and if anything that I have said helps you, that's a gift for me too, because then you'll be there for me the next time I need you. My obsession, which is the first characteristic of my disease, is really a mask for my impatience and ego. It comes from my mistaken belief that if I don't fix it, nobody will. Al-Anon has taught me that I have to ask if what I have been doing has worked. I have to acknowledge the finite quality of my mind, its ideas, and my control, which is only over myself. I have to let go and let God. My anxiety is a mask for my self-pity and despair. I have learned that envy is hostile self-pity. And I have that in spades. My anxiety is a mask for that. It comes from my mistaken belief that affirmation of my existence depends upon others agreeing that I have cause for despair. I have to ask myself not what's wrong, but what's right. And I have to laugh and celebrate with others instead of commiserating. And mostly, I have to laugh at myself. It's what puts me above angels. Have you ever seen an angel laugh at themselves? (laughs) My anger is a mask for my fear. 
It comes from my mistaken belief that I cannot effect change without a powerful negative emotion to shock others as a shield. And I have to ask myself, what is the worst thing that could happen here? And then realize that no matter how bad it could be, my higher power is up for it, and I must trust. My denial is my mask for my lack of ownership and responsibility. It comes from my mistaken belief that by finding something or someone to blame, the problem will go away. I have to ask myself, whose problem is it anyway? And acknowledge reality, the great reality down deep within us. Reality is really the greatest trip of all. It happens when I choose God's world over one of my own creation. My guilt is a mask for my dishonesty. It comes from my mistaken belief that I must convince others of the good intentions I don't really have in order to be considered nice. I must ask myself if I'm shooting on myself and be honest enough to take care of myself. You know, back about 15 years, right before Tom got into the program, we were going through some bankruptcy, and uh, it seemed like a good time to him to buy a big red truck. And I was horrified. And I said to him, now realize I've been in the program about nine years then, you know, that was the river rafting year. And I said, it's the red trucker me. And I was really surprised when he drove home in the red truck. <laughs> and I think he was surprised when I stayed. You know, I've learned today not to make promises or conditions that I won't keep. And I've also learned to enjoy those really ridiculous things that I do. And to cherish the fact that now, for instance, just this summer, as I go through a bunch more choices and decisions, I realize the theme that you have for this weekend of, um, I, I can't remember the word, it's like more and more freedom, thank you, that we would feel more free this summer than ever before. Now. Tom just said it to me the other day. He said, maybe we've hit freedom from financial insecurity or the fear of financial insecurity. And I said, you're right. We don't have the fear anymore. We have the financial insecurity, but we don't have the fear. Thank you for all the ores that you have given me. And may you have a good first day in sobriety or serenity.